0: This is um, the, the first sort of true Sunday in our Numbers series. And, and what we've done the last three summers is sort of walk through one book that makes up the Torah each summer. And so my first summer here, we did the book of Genesis. The second summer, we did the book of Exodus. The next summer, we did the book of Leviticus. And then this last, or this summer, we're doing the book of Numbers. Um, and we're finding this history of, of these people, of Israel, of, of this Jewish people called out amongst the nations to sort of be a light, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a people who God resides amongst so that they can be a blessing to the world, so that they can move in this place. And one of the things that that I keep coming back to, there's a scholar at at Fuller who wrote a book titled Do We Need the New Testament? Um, Which was a tongue-in-cheek title, but his point was within these stories, within the book of the Old Testament, you can find so much of the character of who God is. So often we ask ourselves, well, what good is the Old Testament? Oh, the Old Testament God is like this, this, that, or the other. And what we find when we really sit with these stories is that these radiate with the same presence that we see in the new. And while with Christ amongst us and in the ways that he comes and inhabits the church and the world and through his ministry, we see God in his most clear, that's not to undercut what it means that God takes up incarnation in the world, What we go as we go through these patterns, we find the stories that point us to what this is. And and last Sunday, we talked about how how the stories of Christ often are mirroring these stories in different ways. And so the numbers tell us the story of this 40-year journey out into the wilderness. And each of the Gospels, or each of the synoptic, Matthew, Mark, Luke uh, Gospels, begin with the story of Jesus being driven out into the wilderness. And yet, not falling into the sand, not going into disbelief and death, he is one who believes through it. And so it is for us as we journey through this book to see the ways in which Christ's life is is marked by this. Now, we've been going over these these Hebrew titles, and we did it last week, and we had all summer off. Does anybody remember the Hebrew titles of all the books? Genesis, yeah, so Kelly, I I don't mean to pick on her, but it's a funny story. She came in the first Sunday, Chris put this up, and Don goes, Kelly, do you know what that says? And she goes, oh yeah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, And she actually points pointed the way we read. Well, funny, it's the opposite way, and it doesn't say that at all. So um, uh, it, it's right to left, and it says, uh, in the beginning, uh, these are the names, names, um, Vayikra, uh, the Lord spoke, um, Betamar, this, this one, into the wilderness, which is a much better title than Numbers, um, and the last one, uh, these are the words, the words that Moses spoke on the plains um, that start the book of Deut- Deuteronomy, that each of these sort of carries a different way of looking at this. And so this one, we find ourselves in the wilderness, in this place of trial and testing, and in this place of journeying with God into the unknown. Now, one of the things I think is helpful is, f- I should say that you guys are like second week, we're in Numbers 1 still, um, is Matt going to do a redo of Leviticus where we do 22 weeks in the book of Leviticus? No, I met with David for coffee this week or french fries, and he was really hard on me, and he said, you get one Sunday on the weird esoteric stuff, and then you've got to do the other Sundays on the big narratives that make up this book. And there are big ones. There's the bronze snake. There's the second Passover. There's uh, Aaron's blessing. There are all these things that make up this book. And so David was very firm with me, and I've been like, what about the... This sort of weird lot, nope, nope, stick with the big hunks because people can remember them, and, and as much as we think we might be familiar with them, we need to regain familiarity with the big chunks before I can nerd out on weird descriptions of stuff that, that is uh, maybe harder to apply, although I have high hopes in myself. Um. This is an outline of the book of Numbers, and so verses 1 through 10 are sort of this beginning at Sinai, which Carla read for us, and of all the people to have read today, I was glad Carla, a lot of people, had they looked at that, would have just said no, um, but Carla was willing to do it with all those weird names, and, and Carla, uh, your mother was Jewish, right? Father was Jewish, um, so I always feel like when we have these type of texts, it makes sense to have Carla read, because she corrects my Hebrew often, uh, especially that I don't give the enough, the the hash enough. Um, so thank you for reading that this morning. So we have 1 through 10, and they just sort of lay out this sort of pristine character of Israel here, is that they're, they've, they've made it through uh, the Leviticus story of these laws. And, and to go through the timeline just briefly is that, you know, from Egypt to Sinai, so they leave Egypt and God rescues them, is about three months. And then at Sinai, they spend about nine months, which is, I think, a helpful image for uh, birthing time. They spend nine months sort of at the Sinai place, learning from God and, and living in this presence. And then this next section, these two Sinai up there, verse chapters 1 through 10, is only two months. And it tells the story of them counting the census. It tells the appointment of the Levites and how they are to march and move and how they are to sort of go to the, to the new place that God has for them. And then the next Persians from 10 all the way to 22 encapsulate 38 years. Um, so Leviticus basically only covered a very short period of time. If Exodus covers only about two months. This covers 38 years in that amount of time until the second census. Uh, there's a long period of time that we're going to cover, um, and it moves very quickly sort of what's happening here. Um, but when they leave Sinai, they leave sort of, or when they leave in 10, they have this hope that they're going to march out with God. And in the instructions that Carla read for us, they're, they're sort of being arranged into almost like a military-type formation as they go to conquest the land that God has for them. And along the way, they disbelieve, and that causes struggles and trials, so much so that the whole generation that's counted, the whole generation that Carla read for us that's counted, is lost in the wilderness, and only two people two of the spies that believe that they can go, actually go into the new land. Moses doesn't go. Uh, Aaron doesn't go. It's only the, these new people, this new generation that goes into the new land. Everyone sort of falls in the wilderness. And so this is this 38-year period is, and so we'll start at the end of, of the Sinai period next week as they get their marching instructions to sort of move out into the world. But one of the things I wanted to to sort of mention at the start is, we'll go back to the numbers thing, is that this is how the camp is to be laid out. And if you notice, the the temple, uh, the smallest square, as best as I can draw a square, is in the middle, um, and that's where God's sort of going to reside in this tabernacle, in this tent in the middle of the camp. God's radiating presence of who he is is going to reside in the center of these people. Now, if you think about the tent of meeting, which we heard about in the book of Exodus, that was outside the camp, and God's presence didn't permanently reside there. It was a place that Moses would go to to meet and converse with God. But what happens as they become God's people, as they're to move into the new land, is that God is going to reside right in the center of their camp. He's going to be among them in new and exciting ways and in challenging and dangerous ways at the same time. God is, God is a, we, we talked about this with the book of Exodus and Leviticus, is that God is looking for a body to take up residency in the world. And the body he chooses for that is through the people of Israel, which gives us the body that he truly takes up residency in the world, Jesus. So um, that's what God is looking for. And so he's found his body here. And those dotted lines are, are these people, uh, the priests, and they are to sit around the this tent of meeting, this tabernacle, so that nobody wanders into it inadvertently and dies, which is generally the threat that they're thinking about here. And these priests sort of serve at the boundary of this place. They mediate, they go in to the place, and they're the ones who also go out to the place. They have this representation figure. And while David told me I can't do too much on this weird stuff, I just want to say about the priests that they have this weird role in which they're called in, in what... The people are called, and we're called this in the New Testament, and in Peter's letters, we are to be a nation of priests. And this priests have this weird role with God in this Torah, is they tend to serve God, and that seems to make sense. So they, they're the ones who serve in the temple, they're the ones who offer sacrifices. And so to be called out by God, to be a nation of priests, is first to serve in God's presence, to serve in God's ways. The second is, is, is to sort of reach across, they protect boundaries. That's the second thing is, and this is something that I don't think is very popular in our world, but I think is a notable challenge for us as Christians, is th- to be a nations of priests is to protect boundaries. It's to sort of know where, where holy and unholy is, clean and unclean, and, and, and to have this place of sort of holiness in which we can reside. Now, holiness, I think, we think like better than thou or like moral perfection, and that's all included. But there's also, I think, in the modern world sort of a missional impetus to holiness too. If you're called to serve among alcoholics, there's a chance in which you are also called not to drink. Your holiness gives you missional power to do that. That's one example, but if you're called to serve among prostitutes and rescue them out of that way, it's important for you to be one who does not engage with prostitutes. The boundaries are there so that we can be more fully claimed by God to live out this, and this is the third thing, is this crossing of the boundaries. The priests protect the boundaries, they serve God, they go up, but they also go out and bring from within the news of what's happened, of what God is doing and how God is active in that place. This is through a series of rituals for them, and it's through a series of rituals for us, I guess, too, funny enough, as the church, albeit somewhat different, Um, that we go out and we bring this good news of what God has done. This is how we become a blessing to the nations. And the final thing, then, is they have a representative role. The priest is the representative of this weighty spot, the spot on earth in which God has taken up residency in the world and is beginning his mission to repair it. And so as a nation of priests and, and, and these people at the center of the camp is what maybe what God is calling us to be, is to have that role, to know what it means to go into the place, to know what it means to go out to the place, and to model that to the surrounding world. You'll see that there are 12 boxes around it, and they're actually told which order they're supposed to camp in, and these are each of the 12 tribes. Now it should also be, this is where Jesus' story mirrors this story in Torah, is that Jesus calls together 12 disciples. He calls together his own 12 to sort of be around that camp. And so this is sort of their layout of their marching orders, the ways in which they're supposed to be, and to be this nation of priests. But what I really wanted to talk about today is counting the book of numbers. There's a great audio Bible. I don't know where Jonathan went. Uh, Jonathan and I listened to it, and it's got this great voice that announces every book, and it says, the book of numbers, and it like the music swells. And it's great because it gets you excited about the book of Numbers. You're like, I've never heard anybody say it with such power. The book of Numbers. So one of the things I wanted to talk about today is counting, which seems like a weird thing to talk about. The, the Bible uh, has this weird notion of what counting is. It seems to believe something that only belongs to God. Because so what happens, if, if, if we remember, is that in Exodus, 70 people or at the start of Exodus 70 people Abraham's descendants go into Egypt. And what happened is Pharaoh does his own counting after many generations and he says these people are too many. These people have gotten too great. It's this it's this tyrant thing that seems to want to count on its own. And it's this tyrant thing when it counts also wants to protect and preserve, right? There's a threat here. We can count threats. Uh, Oftentimes, when we count count threats, too, it becomes a faceless mass. It's not these are these people, but that this mass has become too many. We must do something about it. That's Pharaoh's version of counting. Caesar, in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, also calls for his own counting, too. I've come to take a census of the land. And these countings spur out interesting things in the Bible. But there's another counting. There's this one that King David does. And he wants to count the people himself before they go into battle. And his his commander says, that's probably not a bright idea, but David decides to do it anyways. And that story ends horribly. Because sometimes when we count, we count our own confidence. We count our own security in the world. And this is, this is where counting, I think, comes in one sense to the modern world, is that we can count uh, stock market numbers. Um, we can count, the one thing that I actually check as a number, I was trying to think, what do I count? I have two kids, so it's not that hard. If you had lots of kids, it might be more challenging. But I was like, I check my credit score way too often for somebody who has no way to use their credit score. It's just like, hey, makes me feel good. It counts my own security in the world. And you might check your stock market, your bank account. Your this, these things you count. You also count absences too. But we count things that are valuable to us. Now, when I would go on, on church mission trips, there was a, I had to look in the back of the van and see that the heads were all there. I had to keep count of the people I was responsible for. We count things that are treasures to us. We count things that are meaningful to us. We give numbers to these things. Counting in is to bring sort of an order to something. It's to organize it in some way. We also, I said, count abstinences and losses. There's um, six million people lost in the Holocaust. The number's lost on September 11th. The number lost in battles. We count absences in places, too. It's not just presences that we count. But the book of Numbers starts with God telling Moses and Aaron to appoint people to do accounting. There's a previous census in the book of Ex- Exodus where they count all the people. And so we had 70, and at the end of the book of Exodus, they take this sort of census counting where they, um, everybody offers something so that they can be marked as part of God's people. It's their sort of tax on being brought in, and it's a, it's a small thing, and it's what builds the tabernacle. And this census, they get 600,000 people, give or take. The census that Moses and Aaron undertake at the beginning of the book of Numbers ends with 600,000 people as well. Now, there's a. if you find it interesting and want to know about where there really 600,000 men in the wilderness, you can talk to me afterwards. <laughs> I don't think uh, there's a couple things that are going on with the Hebrew as well as with... Um, uh, the way in which this preserved for us, this would be like 80% of Egypt left if there were 600,000 men in the wilderness. And if that's interesting to you to talk about, uh, we can talk about it after the service. I don't find it that interesting because what we do is we trust the story as we go. We trust in, in this sort of canonized version of what God has done. And if 600,000 people, if that's an, um, an off number, then we can talk about that. But I don't think it's that important. But we have is these other people who have done the censuses, and, and they count these 12 tribes up, and they come to these 600,000 men, um, sort of ready for battle, called out and numbered by God. And God has ordered them. Now, now the, the Hebrew word set at rosh, which Carla will correct for me later, um, uh, is to lift up the heads. Now, no translation in the English I could find actually gets this, captures this meaning. You have to read Jewish sources to get it. But what Moses and these men are called to do is to lift the heads of the people. This is a different form of counting than I looked in the back of the van. There are 12 heads there that I'm responsible for on this mission trip. I don't know if they're the 12 heads that I, I know, but there's 12 heads. Let's get out of here. Um, uh keeps it fast and effective. It's a way to sort of to sit and look into the face of the person. It's to count in an intimate way to lift the heads. It also has this dual sense that the rabbis are aware of from the story of Joseph. It's It's also a way of losing the head, too. There's this way in which this will play out in both ways in the book of Numbers to lift the heads and to see them. In this generation, this, these heads that are lifted are ones that are lost in the wilderness. And so this people, this counting is undertaked to show what's lost and what's found in this way and God's faithfulness through it. God calls them out in lifting the heads. This is from uh, on the back of the bulletin from one of the rabbis commenting on the scripture. It says, telling and counting are, of course, Related, indeed, both involve relating, recounting, telling, attending to loss and gave. Whenever God commands a count of his people, says Rashi, this becomes an expression of his love. After historical crises like the Exodus and the sin of the golden calf, he counts it in order to find out how many have survived. When he comes to dwell among them, he likewise numbers them. God's love, it seems, is at its keenest in two opulates, opposite situations. In celebration and after catastrophe, counting punctuates both presence and absence. It is a way of paying attention for Rashi, who's this ancient commentator, loving attention to the individual within society. That this counting is this sort of numbering and looking at in the face and protection of them. And you know, yet what happens, and because I'm on a 10-week strict deadline on this, but I don't think we'll make a lot out of the second census here. But there is a second census at the end of the book of Numbers, and they count again, and everybody's there. And what happens is in the book of Numbers is, is there's, this, there's this gap that I tried to drew as excellently as it could, is that this exodus generation on the top line comes out into the wilderness, and there are this wilderness generation And what happens is is that they are given military marching orders at this point to sort of shape them as a society and to march into the new land. Yet they send spies ahead of them, and the spies spend 40 days there, and they come back, and only two of the 12 spies, 10 of them, uh, are willing to go into the land. And one of the laments the people has is that we can't go into the land. Those people are too strong, and what about our little ones? Fears for the kids is why we can't go into the land. And what God says is, because you spend forty days scouting the land, you spend forty years wandering the wilderness. And a selection from Numbers 14 In the wilderness your carcass will drop. Your carcass shall drop in the wilderness until the last carcass is down in the wilderness. In the very wilderness they shall die to the last man. That this is sort of this this belief that causes this journey. And so what happens in the midst of the wilderness is we have this birth of a new generation. That's the line that goes off from the bottom. And this new generation is the one that goes into this promised land, goes into this promised place. And what I would say about these two lines in that box in the middle is that this is where we often live as Christians. We live as those who have been rescued out of a place of slavery and sin and death and angst and anguish, being brought to God's promised new land, the kingdom of heaven that is before us. And we have this tendency of being the Exodus generation that wants to go back, that wants to go back to slavery and find its own comfort. And so that dies in the wilderness. But we also have this hope that rises within us. We have this faith that we're called into that says, no, we've, we've been transferred to a new generation, a new timeline, a new place, in which we are those who will receive the promise upon which God has for us. And so the numbers at the ex's generation is mirrored in the birth of the new generation. 600,000 are counted here, and only two will make it into the promised land. 600,000 at this final census are counted, as God has preserved all the people. One of the things I wanted to point out is it's helpful for us in a society of individualism to think about Israel as one person. The story is the story of Israel, who is God's person in the world. As an individualist, I think, what good does it do me to be of the wilderness generation if I won't see the promised land? But what God is doing through the church and through Israel is shaping one body. In our case, it is the body of Christ in which we are being shaped into. And so for these people, it meant more to know that you're your offspring was going to inherit the land. There are people who work up inheritances today, but it's less popular. But it meant more for them to know that their, their people will still be the ones who receive God's promise. And so it is for us as we await the fulfillment of time. We too may pass in the wilderness before we reach this land. But we can live in the promise that God will fulfill this, that God will bring us about to this place. Which brings us back um, to the passage that Kara read for us during the worship set. This is David reminded me of this, this week is that there's these stories in Luke fifteen of there are ninety-nine, somebody who had a hundred um, sheep, and he counts ninety nine of them, and yet one has gone astray, and he seeks after the one. And a woman who has ten coins, she counts them up one day and finds she has nine. So she overturns her house to find the lost one. The final story, which most people are familiar with, is a man who has two sons. And one son goes off into his own wilderness and finds himself back at home. And God rejoices over that son as much as the one who has saved. What is lost to us is not lost to God. God is this one who counts and counts again to show that his fulfillment comes in the regrouping. That which is lost is which found, which is brought back. As it said in the reading, is that more angels in heaven rejoice over the lost that is found. God loses a generation in the desert of this old generation, and yet he raises up not one lost in this new generation and they are ones who inherit the promise and are brought into the new land. Let us pray. God, you are one who has called us to serve as a kingdom of priests through our worship and through our time together and through meeting your Son. We know of holiness that radiates in the world so much that things cannot be the same. To have for us to reach across boundaries and to represent that in the world. We can't stay at Sinai forever and we are called to go out and to go forth in the same way that Israel is. And so too we also see that you lift heads, that you call forth accounting. And through our own ways, we live as a wilderness generation at times. Those who will fall into the sand. But God, you have promised us something. And you attend to raise up that number through that lifting of heads again. To bring us into that new land, to that new hope, into that new heaven and new earth so that we may rejoice at being found by you and brought into new life. We pray all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.